Welcome to the last episode of 2020 for the vast majority. I am Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, and I am joined by our producer, Sarah Hurd. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Micah. We did it. Almost. <laughs> we did it. Yeah, and I'm sure there will be no fresh, awful horrors to uh, confront us. We're leaving all this behind in 2020. Tabula Raza 2021. Yeah, and the Biden administration. Are you stoked? Are you stoked? Looking looking great. Looking like uh, he's really caring about what people at Socialist Magazines have to say about his policies, as we always knew he would. This is, <laughs> everything's coming up Millhouse right now. Looking yeah, great. yeah. All your cabinet picks, like uh, that guy from Monsanto. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh... We're getting ahead of ourselves here because this is an essential piece of the 2020 year roundup, which you and I uh, are here to do. Now, I don't think either of us are setting out here to give a complete roundup of every good and bad thing that happened this year because none of our listeners would have any interest in that whatsoever. Anyway, uh, but we're just going to give some of our our highlights and our lowlights of the year and uh, I think uh, if you have you, you have some ideas about where we should start this conversation, right? Yeah, I think all of our listeners, if there's one critique that we've gotten in 2020, it's that we didn't talk about Bernie Sanders enough. This is a big problem with Jack. <laughs> the people, they've been pounding on our door saying, why don't you talk about Bernie more? We only did seven or eight episodes about <laughs> uh, a senator named Bernie Sanders this year. But I feel like... For me, at least, when I've been reflecting on the past year, that almost just feels so much like a lifetime ago that it wasn't until I was looking at our episode log that I was like, oh, yeah, that was this same very year. Uh, So, yeah, we were talking a lot about um, how Bernie could win, who he needed to win. Um, We almost did an episode dunking on Joe Biden and then instead put out an episode being like, maybe he's got a shot, which... I think was probably a good call on our part. (laughs) Yeah. um, You know, nobody needs a full rehashing of that campaign, but I guess maybe at the end of 2020, it's worth thinking a little bit about the campaign. I mean, I think on the left, there is a certain take on Bernie and that whole experience that people who became leftists through that experience through the last couple years uh, through seeing other things that have gone on in 2020, like the explosion of protests around George Floyd. There was this meme during George Floyd protests where somebody said something like, uh, society has evolved past the need for Bernie Sanders, which uh, I, is a reflection, I think, of, for many people, they feel like their politics evolved very quickly. You know, Bernie put this kind of radical politics on the agenda, the social democratic politics. He represented this kind of uh, open socialism that we had never seen before in our lives and never even in American history, arguably, at least on the the level of a a figure actually having a chance to uh, win the the presidency. Um, Bernie was that person. And so for a lot of people who... um, got involved in leftist politics through that they they uh, i i knew many and i saw many just sort of like move quickly from like oh well uh if if bernie is good and bernie is a socialist then 
this other, like, even more radical stuff is uh, even better. And, you know, maybe, in fact, well, Bernie said that uh, we need something more than just electing him president. Well, yeah, maybe we don't need to be worried about this election stuff at all. Maybe this is a trap. We just saw how the Democrats will do uh, anything they can to destroy even a candidate like Bernie, who is, as we've said before on this podcast, not arguing for the dictatorship of the proletariat. He was saying free public college, free public health care for everybody, hardly the the stuff of, of uh, you know, communist states. Um, but I think that at the end of 2020, people should be, uh, should, should not go too far in that uh, direction because um, the reason that we our politics have been so transformed over the last few years is because Bernie Sanders ran for president and he did so in a way that was compelling to millions and millions of people. He did radical politics through a presidential campaign in a way that got millions of people excited, that inspired large numbers of other people to run for offices, everything from city council to uh, the House of Representatives, and people won. Uh, we, we learned through his campaign that you can actually make credible runs for office up and down the ticket in American politics. Sometimes you can win, um, but you can do that, and, and that that can have a really catalytic, like transformative effect on uh, the entire American political system. Now, it's important to say what the limits of that are, and 2020, if anything, will give us some sobering reminders of how little power we on the, the budding socialist movement, the socialist left, actually have. Uh, but that is a, a, a crucial thing to remember because the left spent so many years saying that we could not engage in electoral politics in this country, that it was a dead end, that uh, the energy of social movements would be just automatically zapped by any engagement in electoral politics whatsoever. And the Bernie campaign showed us that that, that is not true, that uh, if electoral politics are done correctly, they can have this, you know, this, this effect that radiates out in all kinds of different directions that are about way more than just winning an individual office, but they really can put radical politics on the map in that way. And that's something we have to keep in mind, I think, in the, in the years to come in this sort of post-Bernie landscape that we uh, now occupy. Like, he, he showed what is possible through campaigns like that, and we should keep doing them on top of doing all the other organizing that doesn't have anything to do with elections that we all know is necessary. Right. Well, and I think that more than just in terms of, like, what our political goals are, I think setting an example of what it looks like to be a politician that has some modicum of integrity and just his ability to survive as long as he did in the American political system, I think that has been and will continue to have a huge effect on the work that we do. Because, I mean, speaking for myself as somebody who spent one summer as an intern at the Senate and decided, like, well, politics is a disgusting place and I have no role in it because I'm a real <laughs> person with a heart and a soul. Um, yeah. giving people an option. And I think that that's what like democratic socialists of America is all about is the idea that like, it's not the, like the democratic system that is like hopelessly terrible. Um, and yeah, that isn't ever going to be our only place that we do battle. Um, but we, we cannot and should not cede it. Yeah. I mean, we should be very sober about what the limits to those kinds of projects are especially in the united states and if you read jacobin or you listen to this podcast we talk about that all the time like the 
Yeah, th- this is this is very important to wrap our our minds around because there are many. The reason why le- so many leftists eschewed electoral politics for so long was because there were so many decades in which leftists tried to make things happen through electoral politics uh, and they failed. So you know, we, we have to be very sober and cognizant of those limits too. Um, I also think though that uh, th- th- there's a danger in the excitement of the the building of an organization like the Democratic Socialists of America, which I have, am, of course, a, uh, a partisan for, a member of. Me and Megan Day wrote a whole book that was like, a, you know, an ad for DSA in part. Um, so I'm, I'm a very, I'm, I stand DSA. But I, I, I think there's also a danger that uh, in the creation of this new movement in an organization like DSA, that it's so exciting that all of a sudden we have a, uh, uh, organization with I don't even know how many members at this point eighty thousand something like that, um, and you know in in your city like in Chicago where you and I live like I know that both of us have a whole new social network so a whole new groups of close friends and comrades who we spend lots of time with who we met with through DSA so uh, it, that all that is good of course but there's a danger that we sort of like create this little subculture that we have and we're sort of happy about that and we think that we you know we equate that with somehow like arriving at a new stage of politics and it's like we don't have to treat that as tenuous so we don't have to like worry about you know the health of that organization and getting it to grow or to get it to sink more roots into the working class i mean uh we we can't sort of like rest on our laurels about this cool thing that has been created in the wake of the first bernie campaign uh because in the grand scheme of things it's quite small its power is very minute uh it's got a toehold in political discourse in america which is a great thing and a change from the last half a century but that is not enough to win things like medicare for all or to stop the war it's a pinky toe exactly it's like a pinky toe so people should be very cognizant of that and should understand that the kind of mass politics that we saw through the bernie campaign like we need to do more of that if we're going to grow this thing because this movement can't just stay where it is if it's going to have any real impact on the world it feels like when we were doing bernie there was this real connection between organizers and people who were not organizers. And I think that one of the kind of challenges, I mean, so I don't know if anybody heard that a little thing called COVID-19 happened this year. Folks, you heard of this? You heard of this stuff? What's the, what's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal? Um, but it forced a lot of us, um, essential workers aside, um, back into our homes um, and there was a real kind of inability to connect on the doors uh, with people. And I think that one of the unfortunate side effects of that has been that people end up, you know, leftists, leftists just talking to other leftists all day and getting kind of wrapped up in this whole world of, um, you know, different opinions on these kind of like minute issues that maybe aren't even completely relevant to most of the people that we were talking to back in January and February. And that that is something that does concern me a lot. Yes, that's a really good and important point because so many people in orbits like the DSA world were gaining the skills, like real political skills, learning how to knock on doors, learning how to talk to people, you know, just doing basic stuff like organizing meetings and public events and like we were we were gaining the skills to do the stuff of politics. 
Um, and then COVID hits, and we, in, in addition to us going through those process of gaining those organizing skills, uh, we were also having our hopes raised incredibly high. We were actually allowing ourselves to think about the possibility of having a socialist in the White House. And th- what an awful way for it to end because there was no way to do, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're doing events, you're knocking on doors, and then it just stops. And all of a sudden you're thinking that the world is about to be radically transformed. And then that just ends. And y- you don't have any time to, like, process what the hell just happened like to really take stock of what we learned and experienced through the the bernie campaign especially i mean i obviously am a little uh biased in this regard because i wrote a book that i was hoping was gonna be a central guide to some of those conversations about what the post bernie landscape would look like and then all of a sudden it's like nobody gives a shit about my book that was released in like early march they were like where can i find hand sanitizer and masks and like yeah you're the real main victim of this micah you didn't get to go on your nationwide book tour which was secretly going to be just a vacation for you and we're all (laughs) That's the big. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about the biggest tragedy of COVID, which was uh, Mike's no, big no, no, no. trip. <laughs> to, be, to be clear, I, I have been I've been chilling. I, I'm you know got I haven't lost my job, haven't lost my uh, my health. Uh, but that is a really serious thing that we weren't able to go through that sort of uh, that whole process of you know grieving and taking political lessons and and done everything that we had been moving like we we had been putting our, the ducks in a row to be able to do that in sort of like a healthy and politically constructive way and then just out the window but i guess that's what uh, that's what happens when a, a pandemic hits your society and your earth well and and yeah i think that's a big part of it but also it felt to me in the last days of the bernie campaign like it was kind of like it felt almost a little bit out of control like it was just like we've got this moment and we've got to just you know, build fast. Jane McAlevey says no shortcuts. I feel like we were like, got to take some shortcuts. <laughs> or like we found one. We like, we unearthed these cheat codes that we didn't know <laughs> were there. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel like maybe, and this was just the way that it worked out. And I think we're doing some of this more foundational work now. But I think, yeah, when when it all kind of came to a halt, it was like, oh, okay. So now we don't really have the ability to follow up with all of these people that we've talked to and like, you know, build an actual meaningful connection with, you know, the 20 people that I talked to on the doors in Iowa, like any sort of connection that I made with them was automatically a little bit more shallow because I wasn't from there and I wasn't going to come back for another four years. And so I think something, at least for me, that I've been trying to think about is like, how do we with the very limited time that I feel like we now have, um, do that real deep building. And I'm so glad we got to talk to Jane McLevy this year because I think she has been kind of like hammering home some of these uh, truths about how we build uh, for a long time. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, related to this that we've been talking about was that when uh, the, the George Floyd protests took off this year, it did feel like well, it felt many things. I mean, uh, but one was that we just had this whole experience that we just described with Bernie and then the end of the campaign and then we're all of a sudden in lockdown. And then all of a sudden this thing that nobody would have really guessed happened, uh, which was that there was this yet another gruesome police murder of a black person captured on camera. And the protests just, you know, 
took off like like a wildfire um and i you and i were both present for a lot of those protests and they were really formative experiences for a lot of people uh i mean the new york times says that it may have been the largest protest upsurge in all of american history and there's plenty of good things to talk about how how amazing that is on the other hand as I believe Megan and I discussed on this podcast at one point. Uh, it's also kind of a sobering reminder of just how undemocratic and unresponsive our political system and our two political parties are that the largest protest upsurge in American history happens. And yet Joe Biden and Kamala the cop Harris are the ones who are picked to lead that party, the ostensible left wing parties ticket. Uh, like it's like the the largest upsurge in this country's history in protest had zero effect on what the the party did, who they chose, what policies they ran on. In fact, when November came around, just a couple of months after these protests had exploded, immediately after the election is over, you've got centrist Democrats talking about how those protests and the demands that came out of them, like defund the police, as well as this new demand for socialism. Those are what's responsible for the Democratic Party performing as poorly as it did in those elections. So, to me, you know, this, this isn't the fault of anybody who went out in the streets It's uh, that this is the situation. It's more like this is how undemocratic and unresponsive our political system is, and that should really sober us up in terms of uh, understanding what it's going to take to actually change this society. Because again, it, it's it's like, you know, no one would say that, uh, that orchestrating, or not orchestrating, but just no one would say that the largest protest upsurge in American history is a shortcut, but it also kind of did feel like a shortcut. Like, we didn't do any organizing. I mean, people have been organizing for years to, like, spread the demand of Black Lives Matter, of course, and there have been previous protest upsurges that were not quite as large, but, you know, that demand was out there and people were talking about it. And you can't have such a huge proliferation of protests unless that has become a, a really, you know, a, a demand that has gone really mainstream. Um, you know, if it wasn't for those years, then there would not have been all those people in the street. But it just happens, and there's no organization to it, and it's just like all of a sudden, in every corner of the country, these protests are happening, and it kind of felt like a shortcut in its own way. But I think at the end of 2020, it's clear uh, that that wasn't a shortcut either, that, that as important as those protests were, they too were not enough to dislodge much of anything uh, in American politics. Well, and these are problems that have been forming for decades, not just the political issues of the fact that our government know that they aren't, they don't have to be accountable to us. I think the protests are an essential part of, again, like this is similar to the Bernie Sanders thing of alerting the public to the, you know, the, the, the situation as it actually is. And I think that... Um, in terms of, you know, yeah, what's a shortcut and what is building? If I was more of a theory nerd, I feel like Lenin has some sort of <laughs> has some sort of writings on like the ways that, um, you know, the kind of long term building of like cadre and party and stuff interplays with the just like mass actions of just, you know, people who are usually not super connected with political stuff. And I think that, yeah, the George Floyd protests were never going to succeed in fixing all of the problems that we have, especially because what they were combating is 
an incredibly um, dangerous, militarized um, American police force, which in pretty much every state in the country has become has has gained so much power that they really aren't accountable to anyone. And I mean, I feel like I learned that firsthand attending a protest here in Chicago where the police beat protesters with batons, used tear gas and pepper spray. And, you know, there were women and teenagers in sandals um, that were getting brutally beaten by police um, because we for decades gave police departments um, pretty much a blank check to buy whatever they wanted and refused to put even the most fundamental oversight over them. And so when, you know, I, I was out in the streets and also I was at the table in terms of our um, coalition that Chicago DSA was a part of trying to negotiate something into the budget to defund the police. It's actually incredibly complicated. It's very wonky, you know, um, it involves the the police union contract and all of these different departments. And, um, you know, this, this was a big first step in terms of getting the the number of people on board and aware that we need to to actually make these changes, um, but it's never that simple as you know we just have to get everybody to come out on one day and then they have to listen to us. You know, given the fact that nothing has fundamentally changed after these protests in terms of policies and lawmaking and police power and police brutality, uh, it probably is not. Uh, too you know wild of a guess to assume that we could very well see another explosion of protests in 2021 when you know a, the warmer months warmer uh the warmer months roll around and there's another black man who is murdered in the streets by police or another black woman murdered in the streets by police uh i mean it it seems like we're going to probably keep going through these cycles and clearly anger is building among the american populace about the both police violence and then everything else awful that's happening in society that's not changing so uh if we're we didn't we didn't make official we didn't say we're going to do like official predictions but you know if i have to offer one that's micah's prediction this is not going to go away any anytime soon we'll probably see more versions of it in in 2021 and who knows where it's going to lead we will put your predictions in our time capsule and reopen it a year from now. Um, but it's only worth anything if we actually look at that and say, okay, what kind of groundwork do we need to, as organizers, lay between now and then to actually have the the desired effect? Um, so that's something that I know I'm trying to put some serious thought into over these cold, very probably indoor months uh, that are coming up. So uh, you told me that you had thoughts about social media in 2020. Yes. Yeah. So what I'm going to be doing is scheming about how we actually use the power of the numbers of people that we brought into our organization this past year uh, to actually do real stuff um, instead of what I feel like I see happening on Twitter, which is just lots of infighting takedowns and dunking and making people the main character of uh, Twitter. I actually, so my deal on Twitter is that I just lurk and I sometimes like things. I rarely retweet. I never actually tweet 
myself. And when I do have something funny to say, I have my boyfriend tweet it for me. And so then I get to watch as all the likes roll in. But then if it doesn't do well, then I don't have to have the public embarrassment of uh, everybody knowing that I thought something was funny that nobody else thought was funny. So I have figured out the perfect way to be on Twitter without being on Twitter. That's good. Um, I'm curious, Micah, what did this year teach you about uh, how to healthily engage with the the place where it feels like so much of what's happening during COVID is taking place? Well, I didn't learn anything about social media this year because <laughs> I've been on this shit long enough to know what goes on on social media. Uh, we had a episode that Megan and I did with... Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House, and I think we titled it Log Off in Your Heart. That was Megan's uh, instruction to to all of us that, like, logging off is perhaps uh, not possible. And, you know, not desirable. She's written other things for Jacobin over the years where she's talked about the fact that we wouldn't have had a successful Bernie Sanders campaign or Jeremy Corbyn's candidacy uh, if social media had not provided a place in which an alternative narrative about politics could cohere. I mean, that's been part of the biggest problem uh, for left politics over the years is that we were at the mercy of mainstream media gatekeepers in order to give things that we always argued were popular uh, attention because, you know, you get laughed out of the room by the mainstream media. That's part of their function. Um, And social media allowed that to change. I mean, mainstream media is still doing the same uh, gatekeeping, but on social media, at least, people are able to find each other and join a socialist organization or join the Bernie Sanders campaign, or if they're in the UK, join uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, campaign and join Momentum or join the Labor Party, etc. So that's just the reality of uh, of the situation that we're in. I, I, I guess I'll say I've, I've tried to treat it strategically because it's like, okay, if that's the situation, if, if there is some use, some level of use of this medium that is essential and is unavoidable then the key if you know you have to do that on the one hand and then on the other hand you know that using it is very bad for your mental and sometimes even physical health and you know it's like how do you square these two things now i think the 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 key to sort of logging off in your heart everybody has their own coping mechanisms you know you have an intermediary you have a middleman to your tweets which i think is extremely smart um, I, I, there are certain people who I have offered such middleman services to, uh, who will not be named, who, uh, similarly are driven insane by, by social media. Uh, my big solution was deleting it off of my phone. And now I'm just like, because I have, uh, well, you, you need little like barriers to tweeting basically. Like you need to make it so that when you go to the bathroom, you can't like pull out your phone and look at it. Right. Uh, or you know, whenever you have a thought, you can't just immediately put it out into the world and or see what other people are saying. So the combination of taking it off my phone and having a, co- a computer that is so ancient that it's like if I wanted to go to it and uh, tweet something, I would need to give it like a good 10 or 15 minutes to, to boot up. To make the <laughs> dial up tone. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're, as you're well familiar with my ancient computer and having these problems when I make you wait like 10 minutes because I can't open the Zoom call, these are the barriers that have been set up uh, for myself. And so I feel like that is uh, absolutely uh, essential and it make, makes it so that you don't lose your goddamn mind on uh, on social media. And uh, also, you, you you eventually graduate to a higher plane of consciousness. You're like, you see 
the nonsense on social media and you're like i don't want anything to do like i i i left all that behind that's the old me i'm not going back to the old me i'm i'm i've logged off in my heart and i've reached this higher level of consciousness so everybody's gotta everybody's gotta get on that level listeners please get 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 on our level here now you're the new micah who has much more time to watch movies about the vietnam war uh, which is a plane of existence we all hope to get to someday. Well, right, because this is what I have done in COVID. Instead of sit on Twitter and refresh it over and over again and drive myself insane, this was the year. I, this this is actually not a joke. At the beginning of the year, I I made a resolution, New Year's resolution, that I've actually made before. I made both of these resolutions before, and I have not followed through on them. I wanted to, one watch more movies and TV because I don't watch movies or I didn't watch movies and TV and two smoke weed and <laughs> the combination of a pandemic and the legalization of marijuana in the state of Illinois has been very great great it's, it's really helped me out a lot on both of those fronts and uh, so now I'm like I'm sure I'm annoying the shit out of all of my friends because I'm just like like watch a movie that I sh- that everybody else saw like a million years ago. And I'm like, did you see this? Did you- I have I have feelings. I have thoughts. This is making me question things in my life, and I'm just like very much like I'm like the stoned like sophomore in my dorm, like trying to like talk to people about I don't know what whatever thing I just I just watched. And to all my if any of my friends are listening to this, I'm sorry that I. I put you, but I put you through this. But I've I've had a very productive year on that front. I watched, for example, the first Rambo, First Blood. Uh, when was that? Maybe like six months ago or something. And it sent me. It's, it's an amazing movie. Uh, I recorded a podcast about it with Jacobin's uh, Luke Savage, his podcast, Michael and Us. And it just sent me down this whole rabbit hole. I watched the first three Rambo movies. And then I just started watching every movie about Vietnam I could. I watched literally like a dozen Vietnam War movies. Uh, I read three books about the Vietnam War. Uh, so I've like I've given myself little projects in that way. Uh, and, oh, you know, only in so far as, as long as I can like keep my attention so I just like spent a month thinking about the Vietnam War, which you know, having now done it, I, I think that every American should probably spend a month of their lives thinking about the, the Vietnam War. But you know, might not have done that if it wasn't for COVID. So uh, guess I'm appreciative of that. Yes, <laughs> yeah, thank <right>. you, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything like that that like was produced by the pandemic? I have not gotten to my stage yet of uh, watching movies about the Vietnam War, although I did read. The Jakarta Method, um, which is a very good book uh, that I think people should read. Uh, although, as my mom would say, uh, not a lot of laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> yes, it's very true. Actually, speaking of the 2020 Roundup, I, without a doubt, would say that Vincent Bevins's book, The Jakarta Method, is the best book that I read in 2020. Every listener of this podcast should buy it. It's about the, uh, what, what is the subtitle of the book? The the anti-communist mass murder yeah the mass murder campaigns carried out by the cia all around the globe uh i did a a discussion with vincent for the jacobin youtube channel before i read it um and i i wish i we should have done another podcast episode with him after i read it because there's there's quite a bit to say about it but yes uh not not a lot of laughs, but a, a, an extremely important book. It sounds stupid to even say this, but I think that, like, honestly, every American should read that book. Because if you want to know 
multiple things. If you want to know like what anti-communism actually meant for the people of the world, uh, if you want to know the kind of just absolutely blood-soaked uh, capers that our government has been engaged on around the world, uh, this is the book for you. And and it's not just about you know communism or anti-communism. It's about alternative political possibilities beyond an American-dominated world order, a global American, you know, a U.S.-dominated global capitalist order. Uh, it's that book. I, I can't say enough good things about it. People should really go buy that book. Yeah. Well, and I think just to kind of do a callback to what you were saying earlier about as much as Twitter is hell on earth, um, the ability to get out these alternative messages that are contrary to kind of the uh, the manufactured consent uh, that has been spoon fed to us and our parents and our grandparents for decades, like that is a good thing that is continuing um, to happen, that kind of democratization of media and knowledge. And I think that another, just to quickly shout out another thing we talked about on the podcast, um, we had uh, Kirsten Godsey on to talk about uh, why women have better sex under socialism, her book, had an incredible conversation with her, which my mom listened to, and then my mom got her book, and then my mom read her book, and my mom's review of that book uh, was also <laughs> not a ton of laughs, um, but... Uh, she she was like, I didn't realize uh, that there were other ways of organizing society that were going on and, you know, had successes and failures the same way that our lives under capitalism have had successes and failures. Yes. Our conversation with her and Scott Sehan got into all of that. And that is really what that's a central part of what anti-communism was about. It wasn't just about defeating communism. It was about snuffing out the possibility of any other way of organizing society. And it, I think experiences like your mom's are probably really common in, in reading Kristen's book because she's like, okay, here are some good things that happened under, you know, in East Germany or uh, in the Soviet bloc, uh, along with some, you, you may have heard about some bad things that happened, but here are a couple good things that happened. And you're like, Oh, so you you mean to tell me there was like good stuff that happened and bad stuff that happened under an alternative way of organizing society? Uh, who would have guessed that such a thing were possible? Because of course, the whole point of anti-communist the anti-communist ideology is to is to just not even make such a I think as Scott Sehan described it in that conversation like an adult conversation about the, those kind of political realities possible. And so, th in some ways, that's the kind of a very basic task of the socialist movement in 2020 is to just like get people to have that kind of conversation and get people to wrap their minds around the fact that an alternative is actually possible. Um, and not to say that what happened in, in the Soviet bloc was the alternative that we want, but it was like, it was an alternative and it, it had some things that we should discuss good and bad. Uh, and if, if we can start that conversation, then I think it'll be a whole lot easier to start other conversations about what a transformed world, uh, a transformed society in America could look like. Yeah. And we talked about the romance of American communism on the podcast this year too, which I think was another, uh, I, I didn't read it until after we recorded the episode, but it's a nuanced account of like there are good things and bad things about all these different ways that we can organize ourselves. And the best thing that we can do is learn as much as we can about all of these different um, experiences that other people have had and that movements have gone through um, and try to synthesize that um, 
in 2021 uh, so that we will not fall into uh, the traps of the past um, and can instead, yeah, like shape shape a version of all of this that um, will work for us in the world that we are going uh, to live in. Yeah, it's funny. You uh, got your mom to read Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. I bought for Christmas Vivian Garnick's The Romance of American Communism for my dad. So this is the year that we tried to get... uh, We read just, you know, mind-shattering, paradigm-shifting books about communism, and then we really just begged our parents to uh please just read this and try to just get 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 some little insight into me and my friends and our brains and what is it what it is that we're trying to do here and flush a little bit of that cold war rhetoric out of your brain where it's been holding a lot of space just with fear and um childhood anxieties and stuff and for all of the shittiness of 2020 of which there's obviously more than enough to go around uh that i feel like Again, with all of the the caveats, all the sobriety that the situation requires, I honestly do think that we are making serious progress on that front. I think that we are slowly pulling ourselves out of that mindset. And and despite everything awful that happened in 2020, we are closer to that goal than we were when 2020 started, even with the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign, even though all of our attention was pulled away to figure out where to find hand sanitizer and, and masks and everything else um we're, we're making progress on this front we should not shy away from that we, we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back too hard lest we cause ourselves an injury uh but we are really moving in that direction we're you know the the the, the arc of history does feel like it's bending towards justice at this point uh bending towards go, justice and achieving far. it is different that's you're very optimistic micah no i just i think that the political education segment of the project is very very important and very very hard and that's where we are now and we are doing it and i'm glad that we are doing it um and the steps that come after it are also very very hard and uh we will have to deal with those when we get there that is my version of optimism is that i think we will in fact get there and, and that's huge. And a big part of that, I think, is, I mean, we've been kind of talking about this over and over again, is, is the left has gotten a lot better at making these ideas accessible to people and, and putting them in places where people can find them. Um, and I think that we would be remiss to not um, talk about Michael Brooks um, and Leo Panich, who I think were, were two people we lost this year who were such um, great examples and whose legacies will um, continue to um, help us uh, in that project of trying to help everybody <laughs> get on the same page about some of this stuff. Yeah, it's been a year in which, it just in this country alone, over 300,000 people have died, and so you almost feel guilty for zeroing in on on anybody uh to talk about your own grief when there's that kind of industrial level uh death that's happening in the country but those were two deaths that uh really shook me to my core this year we did an episode when michael died with uh ben burgess luke savage and megan about michael's very unexpected death at the age of 36 um and People are probably already familiar with this, but just to remind people, I mean, uh, you know, he was a 
really just just getting started in terms of his life and the impact that he was going to make on the world i think and he had uh he, he we we had just launched a youtube show uh, with him and anna kasparian that we, he had it was his brainchild and he had very big plans for and then uh you know it was unrelated to covid but just very unexpectedly out of the blue one one day he's he's died and uh you know i still think about michael a ton uh there were very few people like him on multiple levels personally politically uh but i think i said this at the time that he is someone or he was someone who was very focused on uh, not just like building a, a career for himself carving out a niche in the world of left media he clearly viewed media as a means by which to change the world and that was a project that was not to be engaged in solo it was to be engaged in as part of a collective effort as part of a collective project and you know that's a real rarity to find in anywhere in media uh, including on left media um, so there's a real hole that can never be filled with him being gone and I think Megan and I both said at the time that uh, it, you know if nothing else he offered us a reminder that that kind of emphasis on media, left media, being a collective project is something that uh, we are not going to forget. We're going to take with us for a very long time. And then Leo Panitch, just this month, uh, the famed Canadian Marxist intellectual, I guess famed as much as much as a Canadian Marxist intellectual can be famous. <laughs> Leo Panitch was famous, um, who died uh, of uh, COVID after uh, a number of uh, other medical problems. Another very sudden death that that no one was expecting, and you know that that was another very hard death, uh, both because of who Leo was personally to many of us, but also because. Jacobin would not be Jacobin without Leo Panitch. I mean, Leo Panitch studied at the London School of Economics under the famed Marxist Ralph Miliband. Uh, and if we had to pick one thinker who's probably the biggest influence on Jacobin, it'd probably be Ralph Miliband. And Leo was a really direct link to that history. And he's the kind of person who, when he died, I was sort of going back over some of his work and he, he was so influential that you didn't know that the ideas that you had come to think of as common sense were uh, Panitch ideas, you know. Um, so he had always been just an enormous champion of Jacobin. I also have to say, I was going through this him, his work, sort of pre-2016, and there are a couple of people, you know, a small handful of people who kept the torch of socialist politics alive in the really lean years, you know, the post-60s, that period between the 60s and uh, 2016. And I'm grateful to all of them for keeping those politics alive, for obvious reasons. But I think often it takes a kind of, or it took a, a personality that kind of got off on being like a minoritarian, you know, got an oppressed, you know, uh, minority in the intellectual realm. It's like, like somebody who, who, who found it uh, invigorating to be like the one st socialist still standing, you know? Uh, and again, no shade, 
that you know you you did what you had to do in order to get through some years that I don't know anything about what that was like being an intellectual in those years. Uh, but Leo somehow managed to keep those socialist politics alive during those years, and he was he could be a you know a cantankerous guy. He had very strong opinions, and people have written in Jacobin some of the remembrances about how he was often very stubborn. Uh, but he never lost that just this sense of, of being like a like a beautiful person, a wonderful person who you wanted to hang out with, somebody who was really warm, someone who you like looked forward to an interaction with. Um, and in the same way uh, as as Michael, I mean, he he had that spirit about him. It wasn't just that he thought good thoughts about politics and put them on paper in ways that that transformed the way that I looked at the world. He was also somebody. Who, uh, whose company I enjoyed, which is something that matters a lot to me. And I should also say that he was an institution builder. He uh, took over the uh, editorship of the Socialist Register uh, after Ralph Miliband died. One, he was one of the co-editors. Uh, he really steered that ship, I think, as his co-editors would, would freely uh, admit. And uh, he, like Michael, he was uh, somebody who believed in, in, in doing that uh, and, 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 you know, creating collective institutions and, and was a huge champion of Jacobin, uh, you know, almost from the beginning uh, and, and, you know, believed in the project that we were carrying out and, uh, you know, made appearances in Jacobin, you know, even in the, the early years. You know, there's a video of him and David Harvey uh, debating something or other. I don't even remember at this point, but I, I stumbled across the video the other day. Uh, and that was in the early years of Jacobin before we, I think, even really had any staff to speak of at that point. So he, he was always a champion of, of our project, and uh, we owe him an incredible debt. Uh, to say nothing of, you know, the, the, the incredible ideas that he put forward. Uh, I, I think I've read four or five of his books, all of which are, are still incredibly relevant to the socialist movement today. So uh, we're really, really going to... Miss Leo Panich, and I, I guess I should mention that uh, just this year, I believe it was in May, right? He came on this podcast uh, and talked about his latest book with uh, Stephen Marr and Sam Gindin uh, about uh, the socialist challenge today. That was just sort of taking stock of some of the most important lessons for the new socialist movement after uh, Corbyn, Sanders, and Syriza in Greece. So we, yeah, we could have gotten a lot more of those out of him, and I'm, I really wish that he was still around to give them. He memorably said uh, Bernie didn't fail, uh, he was defeated, and that we shouldn't take it as a, like, you know, as the end, uh, because it is just the beginning. Um, and and just on a personal note, uh, I that was the only time I ever met him, uh, but he was in that very short interaction of me walking him through how to share his audio into the Google Drive, I felt as if we were friends already just an incredibly warm and uh and so open to learning and growing in a way that is rare um not only amongst people of his age but too rare kind of in people in general uh, in my experience he's a model for what becoming an old socialist should be you know that's that's the kind of old so we, we we can't be a finger wagger we have to uh be a, a warm and generous uh old socialist like him also people you know people love to talk about uh i have this deep voice or whatever uh but i think leo panich had the best voice on the north american left because not only did he have like a deep voice but it was like he'd be like 
Sarah, so good to see you. It was just like it was like a, such a cuddly like grandpa voice. People, you gotta go listen to his old uh, old recordings to get a taste. No, of that's Leo so Panage funny voice. you mentioned that. I was listening to the episode and I was like, compared to Leo Panage, Micah sounds like shit. On this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, yet another thing that I will look to him to emulate <laughs> to try to develop that style of of uh, Leo Panage vocals. That's what I'm striving for. <laughs> Yes, and I think that that is about as helpful of a note as I am comfortable ending on for this podcast. Let us in 2021 and beyond be like Leo, be like Michael, be builders in left media and in other organizing spaces. Damn, that was pretty good. You just pulled that out off the top of your head. We gotta get we gotta get back to these in person meetings so you can give some you know impromptu uh, off the top of the head speeches to crowds of the working class. I'm working them all up. I'm banking them <laughs> right back here. As soon as we're back in person, it's gonna be speech city. Well, thank you to everybody who has uh, listened to this podcast in uh, 2020. We have some uh, interesting ideas, which you'll be hearing more about, uh, about some potential changes to this podcast for 2021. Uh, All good. So uh, look forward to that. And uh, thanks for sticking with us through this year. And uh, we'll see you all in 2021. See ya. The vast majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe.